The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study class. For those of you joining us live this morning, happy Father's Day. For those of you who are fathers, uh, I'm blessed to have my kids home this morning, so it's a, a good Father's Day for me. I hope it is for you. It's a reminder that there's some, like my wife Natalie, whose father is in heaven. So today's a reminder of why we miss them and how much we miss them. For those that uh, are like me and are blessed to still have my father with us, it's uh, wonderful to be able to uh, have a day where we can remind them how much we care for them and love them. Uh, uh, one of the reasons I teach is to honor my father, and so it's a, a blessing that he can be with us this morning, and uh, I hope that all of you have a great Father's Day. We're continuing our study in Second Timothy, and we're winding down our two-year study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. We've got a really neat lesson this morning. If you were with us last week, we tackled the subject of spiritual gift anxiety. And it was interesting to me that I got three different emails from people in class this morning that basically said the same thing. And that was, thanks for the lesson, uh, and then just confessing about anxiety they have over their uh, use of their spiritual gifts, or for one person witnessing, uh, and for another person uh, uh, discipling, having someone younger that they could work with, and the anxiety of what to say and what to do and how to do it. Uh, this week's lesson is in our Bible for the exact reason to tackle that issue. Because after Paul teaches Timothy about how to deal with his spiritual gift anxiety, this week he moves into some motivation, how to handle that. Because for all of us, we look at the question that Timothy was struggling with at that time. As he was frustrated with the things in front of him, as he's anxious about using his spiritual gift, as he's unsure what God has in store for him, he starts to wonder, basically, what does God want from me? Why, why am I here and what does God still want me to do? It's a question that's applicable to all of us. It's one that we ask at many different times in our lives. What does God want from me? The answer is real simple, and I'm going to give you some motivation in the lesson today about how to work towards that, but the lesson is quite simple. The uh, answer is quite simple. God wants us to grow up, number one. In other words, he wants us to be spiritually mature. He wants us to be more Christ-like in what we say and how we act and how we interact with those he's put into our lives on a daily basis. So number one, we've got to grow up. Number two, he wants us to be people of the truth. We've had multiple prior lessons on this. He wants us to know the truth and then to tell it in love, not dogmatically, not beating people up, not mean, but in love. And for all three of these things, like Christ in everything. And our reference to that is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15. Uh, you can look it up on your own if you want, but that's the short answer to the question. But for all of us, we're kind of like those uh, emails that I got last week. I still feel like I can't do it. I'm still frustrated. I, I think I know what my spiritual gift is. Some people say, but I'm scared to take the next step, or I've prayed for the next step and God hasn't opened a door, or I'm waiting for the door to open, but I'm scared to walk through it, or I know somebody I could share my faith with, but I'm scared to do it. Whatever those issues are that you're struggling with, the feeling of I feel like I can't do it is exactly why Paul's got this morning's lesson, why Paul is trying to teach Timothy 
the motivation to keep in mind as we struggle on those days or those weeks or those seasons of life we feel like I just can't do it. So he starts us in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy with two commands. And I'm covering this by way of illustration because the bulk of the lesson is going to be on some illustrations that he uses to apply these two commands. The commands are fascinating because 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 is really the pivot point for the entire book because verse 1 is the conclusion of chapter 1 last week. Verse 2 is a summary of everything that's encompassed by everything that flows after this. So it's the pivot point in the book. And the first command, the summary in response to chapter 1 is be strong. Remember last week was spiritual anxiety. And we had six life lessons, six teaching lessons on how to combat spiritual anxiety, spiritual gift anxiety, using your spiritual gift and being anxious or scared or depressed about using it. The start of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, is the summary of all of that, which is essentially be strong. And this is a neat little point because he says in verse 1, you that you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to diagram this and give you a little bit of Greek grammar understanding because it's the key to understanding how all of this applies in this verse to our lives. The first thing I want to do, though, is give you a slightly different translation because I realized once I got into this that the use of the Greek word here is real important, and a slightly different interpretation helps us apply it a little bit better. So this is from one of the trans, uh, one of the literal translations uh, called the Passion Bible, and it says, Timothy, my dear son, live your life empowered by God's free-flowing grace. So in our uh, original translation of be strong in the grace, the reason why the other translation uses it is live your life empowered by God's free-flowing grace is that's a correct interpretation of our verb because our verb here, be strong, in the Greek is passive, not active. And that's the key to this entire interpretation. In English, we change the whole sentence order to differentiate between active and passive. Active is when the subject of our sentence is doing the action. I could say as a sentence, Chris taught his lesson. That means I, the actor, the subject, am doing the one that's teaching. A passive verse, we consider in English not a good way to speak or write, but passive flips the order. And a passive verse in English would say, the lesson was taught by Chris. You can see who the actor is there, the subject, the, the, the direct object of the sentence is what's doing the action on the subject. The lesson was taught by Chris. In Greek, it's a whole lot simpler. They just change a letter in the same word. And so here what's critical is this is not a lesson to Timothy to pull himself up by the bootstraps. That would be the active use of this verb. Timothy, be strong. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and remember that you've got God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's not the right interpretation. This is passive. Change one letter in the Greek. It's be strong and the subject of your strength is not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The subject of this sentence is the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That's why this translation is so good, because you're living your life empowered not by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not by you being strong, not by you being motivated, but you being empowered by God's free-flowing grace. Now, here's why that second part is important. Because our struggle with our spiritual gift anxiety is simply, I can't do it. 
And as I've said before, that's the exact place God wants all of us so that we have to give up ourselves and rely on him to give us something. But think for a minute what God's grace is. It's unmerited favor of something that we don't already have. We think about that in our salvation, and we can kind of wrap our brains around it. I was dead. He gives me eternal life. It's his gift to me. It's not something I do or I create or I manifest. It's his gift to me. It's the exact same thing in our spiritual gifts, because if I'm not capable of using my spiritual gift, if I don't have the experience I feel, if I don't have the training, if I didn't go to seminary, if I've not been in church long enough, if I've not been studying my Bible long enough, I feel like I don't have the things to use my spiritual gift. And just like with our salvation, that's the exact place God wants us to be, because when I feel like I can't use my spiritual gift, but it's empowered by God's free-flowing grace to manifest my gift, to use it for those he wants me to use it for. I'm using his gift through me, his knowledge of the words to say, his knowledge of my mind to know when to use it and when not to use it. It's all coming from him through me, and I'm just his obedient vessel. So that's why this verse is so important to be strong to live our lives empowered by his free-flowing grace means when I feel like I just can't do it anymore. We rely on him, and he gives us, through his grace, those things to use our spiritual gift. That's why it's command number one. Uh, if you want to cross-reference, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord, same use of the passive verse, as it's a passive verb, and in the strength of his might. It says the exact same thing as 2 Timothy 2.1. Also, a great reference from the Old Testament, uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, one of the uh, kings of Israel, was going into war. He says the exact same thing. We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. That's someone saying, be strong in the Lord, in the spirit of God's grace. Because if you don't know what to do, but you're looking at him, it says that you give me the spiritual gift, I'm going to rely on you and when to do it, how to do it what to do, and that's the point. That's how we tackle that first issue of I just don't think I can do it. Next point is he says we've got to use our spiritual gift to disseminate that which is inside of us. All of our spiritual gifts have the goal of helping someone else, of doing something for someone else. For some of them, they're for Christians. For the vast majority of them, they're for non-Christians. And no matter what your spiritual gift is, the idea is replicating what is inside of us, replicating our Christian DNA by being the hands and the mouth and the eyes and the ears of Christ here in a particular sentence with one of our friends or colleagues or someone that we interact with that he wants us to disseminate, to spread out as far and wide as possible that which is inside of us. This comes from verse 2. This was the pivot point where it's describing what everything else that comes next uh, in 2 Timothy. And our verse says very simply, These things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a very simple verse that basically says, disseminate, use your spiritual gift on a handful of other people, faithful men who will be able to do the exact same thing. It's this idea of replicating spiritual DNA. Now, I've got to stop for a minute because in some traditions of Christianity, there's this idea of apostolic authority, the idea that we don't necessarily replicate our DNA, but there's a divine 
uh, following where God's divine presence is on one person and that one person leads the church. That's kind of the Catholic idea of the Pope. Uh, there is no biblical authority for biblical succession as we ta succession as we talked about when we got to uh, the book of Matthew we talked about Christ giving the kings to P uh, the keys to Peter uh, we talked about apostolic authority and we talked about the proper uh, understanding of that verse the proper application of the Greek what it means why it's in that context of why Christ said it to Peter at the time and it's not a reference to apostolic authority you can look at the history of the Christian church you can look at the early church fathers at no point in time up until the fifth or the fourth century did anyone claim that the pastor of the church at Rome had authority over all the other churches. It was a big political squabble through the first, the end of the first, the second, the third, and the start of the fourth century. It was finally, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Gregory the Great, Gregory the Pope, that said, I've got authority because Peter was a pastor here for a little bit of time while he was in prison, and I'm claiming the right to lead the church through him. Now, I'm not throwing stones at my Catholic friends. Uh, I love them. They're going to be in heaven with me. But on our particular view of this differs because the Bible does not teach apostolic authority. Instead, what the Bible teaches is this very verse, this idea not of apostolic authority, but of the replication of spiritual DNA. Because what Paul is teaching here is he got the message from God on the Damascus Road. He brought Timothy to a saving faith in Christ. He says here in 2 Tim 2, 2, you disseminate that to faithful men, and then they're going to disseminate that to others and others and others. And you can see across a couple of centuries and millennium how from one person you can then have hundreds of thousands and millions that trace their spiritual, we could say, ancestry back to the person that led it uh, originally to someone, and then it spread out to a whole bunch of other people. That's what our spiritual gift is supposed to be like, that everyone that you encounter, everyone that you use your spiritual gift with to encourage them, to help them, to get them to a different place of their understanding of God and Jesus Christ in their life is the idea that they then take that and do the exact same thing. They figure out what their spiritual gift is. They grow deeper in their understanding of Christ and their life. And then they use their spiritual gift to bless somebody else. And it multiplies uh, in, in a, in a wide-ranging manner like DNA replicates where it's not linear, it progresses exponentially. And so one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, becomes 32, and it extrapolates like that with limitations only controlled by God. So that's the idea of replicating spiritual DNA by disseminating of our spiritual gift, using our spiritual gift. So Timothy's gift was teaching. Paul says you got to teach a handful of other faithful men. you got to disciple them. Application for us is if your spiritual gift is not teaching, which for most of us, most of you, your gift is not teaching, the idea is you use that not only just to encourage one, but to uh, get them to the next deeper place in their walk with God so they can use their spiritual gift and bless others. Uh, final point here, you got to be a horse, not a mule. Why do I say this? Because mules aren't capable of reproduction. The mule, when a male donkey <clears throat> breeds with a female horse, results in a mule and they are sterile. They cannot reproduce. Walking around in Christianity today, there's a whole bunch of spiritual mules. They don't use their spiritual gift. 
they don't replicate, they don't disseminate the use of the information from their spiritual gift to encourage other people to grow in a deeper knowledge of God and use their spiritual gift. God wants us like the horse and like all the other animals uh, that can breed and can replicate is we're supposed to use our spiritual gifts so that the one becomes the two, becomes the four, becomes the eight, and so forth and so on. Final point here is to stop and appreciate the sin nature reality of self-isolation. In my experience, this is the biggest hurdle to why people think I can't do it. I can't use my spiritual gift because I go through all of these issues. You understand Bible, you understand dissemination, you understand being strong in the spirit of God, but you still say, I just want to go home and be by myself. And I wanted to pause for a minute to recognize, number one, a whole bunch of people feel the exact same way. And there's two aspects of our sin nature that wants us to totally self-isolate. The first one is one of emotional health. Sometimes if we're just not quite in the right place where God wants us to be, we just want to be alone. And I get that. It's a sign of other things going on in life, and it's a part of our fallen sin nature that makes us unhealthy in some respects, just like any other uh, disease or physical or emotional or, uh, condition that we might have. But the other reality is spiritual, and that there is a spiritual aspect of our sin nature that, that, that pushes us towards self-isolation. If you think about this for a minute, this makes all the sense in the world. The whole point of the Trinity the whole point of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in eternal communication, we call it eternal communion, is togetherness. It's the picture of what creation is supposed to be, and that is not isolated but together. In the start of Genesis, the command that we use as the basis for marriage is really a command for how to live all of life. It is not good for man to be alone. I could show you literally thousands of Bible verses on related concepts of not being alone, the importance of friendship, the importance of the community of believers that we live in, both Old Testament and New Testament, the importance of corporate worship, the importance of encouraging other people, the importance of using your spiritual gifts for other people, literally thousands of verses. So how does Satan communicate that? If God says, I want you engaged, I want you as a people person, I want you interacting with other people, not just your spouse, Satan's response to that is, I'm going to have you self-isolate. I'm going to manipulate your conditions, your emotions, the things around you, and I want to put you in a place where you just feel like being all by yourself. I mention that because it's something that we've got to fight with God's power, with God's wisdom, just like with anything else that Satan's throwing up as a roadblock to us. So for that person who feels like, I can't do it, the way that manifests is self-isolation. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to stay in my little box. I'm going to stay in my house or my apartment or my office or wherever it is, and I'm just not going to deal with other people because I don't feel like dealing with other people. That's an aspect of our sin nature that for those of us, when you struggle with it, you've got to turn it over to God. You've got to ask him to give you the heart and give you the mind to get out of that sin nature trap that causes us to self-isolate. Now, with this transition, first command to be strong, not pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap, but through God's Holy Spirit inside of us, and number two, to disseminate our spiritual gift to other people, to use it. 
he then gives us three illustrations to motivate us, three different applications, all of which we're supposed to be in. He's going to talk about the soldier. He's going to talk about the athlete. He's going to talk about the farmer. And we can all relate to this because you may have uh, been a soldier for some of you guys. Uh, a bunch of you guys were athletes, at least back in high school or junior high school. And a handful of you guys even understand what it means to be a farmer. But whether you've never been a soldier, you've never been an athlete, you've never been a farmer, you know enough to be able to relate to these issues, which is exactly why Paul is using them as an illustration. So I'm going to teach through what each of these mean, and then I'm going to apply how each of these things apply to me. And I think you're going to like this, because it starts out with this idea of the soldier. And Paul tells Timothy in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He continues in verse 4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So he starts this idea of the good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, this is an image that has been in Christianity going back for many, many, many centuries. You've all sung the song or heard the song, Onward Christian Soldiers, and you've seen other references where this illustration is used. But I want to pause for just a second. Because our application here is consistent if we have the proper interpretation. So I want to make sure we got the proper interpretation. Because the first question we look at is the question of are we as Christians at war? And inevitably we would all say yes to that. But the things you think we're at war with, if you remember the things I studied you in earlier uh, lessons on Paul, you realize it's different than our gut reaction because we as Christians in the 21st century have made the mistake of what the Christians did about a thousand years ago in looking at this question of are we as Christians at war? Because a thousand years ago, we dealt with the Crusades where the Christian leaders of Europe in response to the Muslim movement out of Africa into what we would now call the Middle East, decided the way we do that is literally with weapons, with swords, with shields, with armies, and they went and had the most bloody series of wars over about 300 years uh, that have been some of the most uh, disgusting things in human history in terms of what the Muslims did to the Christians and the Christians did to the Muslims. Uh, Christians uh, don't think about that much anymore, but I guarantee you today that's still a big issue uh, in the Islamic culture. But I use it as an illustration because when we think about we as Christians at war, we easily think, uh, number one, I'm at war with other, other ideological views. I'm at war with different religious views. Not true. Uh, I'm in a cultural war. And while you could say certain things that there's views uh, religiously or culturally that we're in conflict with, we are not at war with that. Because if there's a cultural fight going on, a religious fight going on, it's at the spiritual level. We've covered this in, our, in the last lesson of 1 Timothy on spiritual war. We covered this in Ephesians on spiritual war. We covered this in Galatians on spiritual war. Those things are fought at the supernatural level. That's the angels against the demons. That's Christ's army against Satan's army. And we as Christians are not fighting that war. If that's our view, we never share our faith with someone of a different ideological bent. We never share our faith with someone of a different religious persuasion. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to let God fight the spiritual war. And we're supposed to be humble servants teaching in love 
to all of those regardless of what their ideological background is or their spiritual background is. So while we live in a war zone, yes, we live in a war zone culturally, politically, ideologically. We individually as human beings are not at war. God is with Satan. Satan is with God. But that's not us. That's not our individual role. What we are at war with primarily is ourselves. Our biggest war zone is that aspect of our sin nature that says, no, I don't want to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. No, I don't feel like doing it. Or getting pulled into a sin nature or a sin pit that we can't get out of, whatever it may be in your life. But the bottom line is we are primarily at war with ourselves. Even though we live in a war zone where God is fighting spiritual warfare on our behalf with Satan and his armies that are trying to mess with us, but we can't fight that because it's spiritual and we have no ability to fight that. The war we do have the ability to fight is the one with ourselves. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's why this is motivation coming out of First, Second Timothy chapter 1 where he gives a spiritual gift, anxiety, checklist on how to solve it. And his first issue is, as a soldier at war with yourself, what do you do? It then gives us some insight because he talks about this issue of being entangled. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Just as a brief digression, a little word here, implicao, is our word for entangled, that it means all tied up with, all interrelated with. We get our word implication, meaning it's all tied together. The implication of something is how it's all interrelated with each other. So this idea of being entangled takes this idea of something that you're tied into that sometimes you might not necessarily should be tied into. Interestingly, it's the exact same word for the crown of thorns that was wrapped around Christ's head right before his crucifixion that was pushed down onto his head that caused blood to flow down his face. Matthew, Mark, and John use the exact same word, implicao, an entanglement to describe what was pushed down on his head as a mocking crown to torture him further and if you think about it that way, you can understand why implicao is something like a crown of thorns being pushed down on you. is something that can have a very negative connotation. In Scripture, it's intended to have a negative connotation. Satan's most deadly tool is to get us busy, to get us implicated, to get us uh, intertwined with something else. He doesn't have to worry about our temptation. He doesn't have to worry about pulling us away from not using our spiritual gift if he just gets us busy. He gets as busy as spouses. He gets as busy as parents or grandparents. He gets as busy as employees or employers. He gets as busy with our hobbies. His greatest tool is not a pit of sin. And his greatest tool is not discouragement from being the person that God wants us to be. His greatest tool is just make us busy. Just get us busy doing anything else in life, and as long as it's not doing what God primarily wants us to be doing with our life, Satan has prevailed. So we're looking around for these pits of sin. We're looking around for these theological issues. We're looking around for ways to be self-righteous, and all Satan's trying to do is get us busy. And with the vast majority of us in the Western world, that is incredibly easy because we are so easily busied. 
and that's Satan's number one tool. So we've got to be careful. So Paul's comment here, the soldier fighting the war primarily with himself, is don't be entangled with all of that busyness it's going to prevent you from learning what God wants you to learn, focusing on what he wants you to focus on, growing the way he wants you to grow, and then using our spiritual gifts for someone else around us that he puts us in touch with. So that's the danger of being busy. So what's our combat guide? What's our standard for I can look at a soldier and say, this is why he uses this illustration, and it applies to me. Soldiers are focused. They got a mission. They go through boot camp and they learn how to use their gun and they learn military techniques. They learn conditioning. The same thing's true for us. I got to be focused on the mission ahead. They are incredibly well trained. For a soldier, they're doing training from the day they get in the service until the day they get out of the service. And just like with us, as long as we're in God's service, we got to be well trained. It's why we have to have daily prayer time, daily Bible study time, daily time reading what God wants us to read to understand his work in our life. A soldier is also self-sacrificial. They give up the comfort of home. They give up the comfort of all the, the leisurely aspects of life that most of us get to enjoy. They sacrifice that for the calling they have, for the mission they're on, and the same things with us. God calls us to self-sacrifice, and instead of just reading whatever we want to read or watching whatever we want to watch or doing whatever we want to do for pleasure, he wants us to focus a part of our day on those things of him so that on a daily basis we're growing, we're maturing, we're becoming more like him. And then last, the soldier is obedient. The whole concept of the military is the chain of command. The admirals that give commands to the generals that follow from the commander-in-chief at the very, very top all the way down to the private at the bottom. And we all know from those uh, types of individuals uh, that the whole key to that chain of command is obedience. You've got to, you don't obey uh, because you like the person. You obey because you're the soldier and they're your superior. Same thing with scripture. We may not like it. We may not understand it. But we've got to be obedient. So those four things are great little illustrations of why Paul used this command of don't be entangled with all those things in the world that Satan uses to keep us busy. Be the soldier that can fight the war with yourself to do what God wants you to be, to be the man or woman that God wants you to be, the spouse he wants you to be, the parent or grandparent he wants you to be, the employer, employee, the friend he wants you to be, whatever the role is in life, whatever the relationship, the idea of the soldier is I'm going to be focused, trained, self-sacrificial, and obedient to fight the war with myself that doesn't want to do those other things that God wants me to do. Second trans uh, transition, the second illustration here is the athlete. And the athlete is one we can all relate to because uh, for those of us that played ball as little kids, uh, we can think back to the glory days. For those of you that uh, didn't play as a kid but you've enjoyed watching it, we can all understand the athlete. And Paul says here in verse 5, so if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, why is Paul talking about this? Well, he gives the illustration of the athlete because we can all relate to what makes a champion athlete. So many times it is not talent. It is not God-given ability that defines the difference between first place and second place, between the gold medal and the bronze medal or the gold medal and the silver medal. Uh, between the championship versus the person that are the team that comes in second. Usually that is not a question of talent. 
talent is the issue of are you playing for the championship? Are you playing for the title? Are you playing for the gold medal? That's the talent difference. But once you've got people with that giftedness, what makes the difference between those people playing for the championship or playing for the gold medal is a question of very simply determination and persistence. The winning differential, what differentiates first place from second place, gold medal from bronze medal or silver medal, is the result of the winning athlete's personal determination and personal persistence. It doesn't manifest in the race itself. Usually it manifests in the training that leads to the race or leads to the competition. It's those years and years of training. It's the athlete that when everybody else goes home, they're still out there uh, training, out there trying to increase their speed, increase their agility, increase their technique, increase their muscle memory, uh, all the different things an athlete does. And it's that unique drive. It's that drive when everyone else says, I'm too tired to go on, or I got to go do something else. The superior athlete's the one that keeps pushing when everybody else stops, that has the determination, that has the persistence to be the best. You look at the greatest football players, basketball players, track athletes, Olympic athletes, that applies to every single one of them that have achieved greatness and you can look at and say they're the best of the best. Yes, they were gifted but so were a whole bunch of other people playing at their level. What made them the best of the best was their determination and their persistence. So with that background, it's the same thing with we saw as the soldier fighting the war against ourselves. The athlete's greatest competition is against themselves. The greatest athlete competes the most against themselves because they realize Everybody else is prone to quit at some point. They're going to compete against their own desire, saying, I ought to quit too. And they push themselves through it. So we see a parallel here with the soldier fighting the war against themselves, the athlete fighting the resistance within themselves to quit, to stop, to go do something else. And that's why Paul puts these two things together. Because the athlete who is going to compete against himself successfully or herself is going to be the one that has the most likelihood of ultimately succeeding in whatever competition they're in. But notice the second part of this verse. The second part of this verse is within this concept of rules. The competition according to the rules. And the reason why Paul uses this phrase in talking to Timothy is because the rules that existed in the first century for the Ithacan games or the Olympic games or any other games they played applied to more than the actual competition. In the Roman world, the Roman rules of the game said, number one, the first rule is you got to be Roman or you got to have Greek ancestry. So you had to have a rule going back to your birth. Number two, you had to have training rules. For the Olympic Games, the Smithian Games, the other games they, they, they competed in, in different parts of the Roman Empire, they had strict training rules. And the typical rule was you had to train for 10 months away from your home with certain restrictions on diet, on your leisurely activity. You couldn't go party. You couldn't date. You couldn't bring your spouse. You had to singularly devote yourself for a season of life to the competition with no other distractions. And then within the competition, there were certain rules. If you were going to throw the discus like my little Roman guy on the screen, 
if you were in a race, if you were boxing, if you were doing anything, the competition itself had rules. So Paul paints with a real broad brush, and he says the athlete going through this can't just excel at what they personally want to excel at. They can't say, well, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to define what's successful. Paul's saying somebody else puts a standard of success on, and the question is, can you meet that other person's standard? And that's exactly why he's trying to use it as a spiritual illustration. Because he's not trying to say this is about keeping God's rules to merit God's favor. That's legalism. There's no place for legalism in the Bible. The reason why we keep God's rules is because he's given us a playbook for how to live the life he wants us to live. Psalm 32.8 gives a great illustration. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. It's God saying, you can go live any way you want, but don't complain to me when the consequences aren't exactly what you expected. What God's saying is, I got a plan for you to be the best person that I've intended you to be but you've got free will. You can go live a different life if you want, but you're going to have some very negative consequences. God's saying, if you'll follow my word, if you'll follow my will, I'll instruct you, I'll teach you, and I'll show you a path that can make you the person that I intended you to be. And so it's not keeping rules so that we earn God's favor and earn our place in heaven. It's keeping God's rules out of love for him, my thank you to him for my salvation, for the purpose of being the person he called me to be, using my spiritual gifts, dealing with the family he put me in, dealing with the job he put me in, all those different things, God's got a plan, and this is saying follow that plan, and you'll be in the place where God wants you to be. Other great cross-reference, using this idea of athletics and race, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run it that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, he's saying as Christians, an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I find myself should be disqualified. We could do a whole lesson just on that verse, but I wanted to give it to you as an illustration. Uh, if you're taking notes just to tie it up here with this idea of his illustration of the athlete. We then wind up on the last one, the farmer. And I, I, I can appreciate this one a little bit more because while I played sports as a kid, while I've read, you know, thousands of books on being a soldier and love everything about the idea of the military life, particularly militaries of the past like World War II. Uh, the farmer I can relate to because my maternal grandfather was a farmer and I would try to spend uh, large parts of my summer as a kid out with him and try to help him uh, sometimes driving a tractor almost all the time helping him move irrigation pipes occasionally helping him plant in the spring if I was there for spring break, occasionally helping him uh, with some harvest if I was there uh, in, in the fall for like Thanksgiving or fall break from school if he was harvesting. But I got to work with my granddad, uh, who I was incredibly close with out on his farm because he would take me sometimes not to help him, but just to talk. And we just hang out together as he was out there working. So I can appreciate a farmer a little bit better. Far, uh, Paul says to Timothy in verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. So the picture we get here is the hardworking farmer. What we got to realize about farmers is they don't have a short-term view. 
the idea of the farmer is you're looking at the long-term view. It's long-term preservation of your land. It's long-term to get your crop. You plant in the spring, you don't get it usually until the fall. There are winter crops. You plant in the fall, you don't get it till the spring. But there's months and months of relatively inactivity where you're just doing some small things along the way with water or pesticides or weeding. But it's basically just letting God take his time. So the farmer is a great analogy of our short-term view of the world versus the way God wants us to view it, which is long-term and don't get uh, upset necessarily about today or this week. Success is also only possible through a consistent routine. It's all about the boring routine, getting the water in the field every morning, every afternoon, every night, getting the pesticides out when you need them to, getting it planted at just the right time, getting it harvested at just the right time. It's all about the routine and you only experience long-term success when you do those day-to-day -day things well. Also, farming is not glamorous. With the soldier, you can have moments of glamour. With the athlete, if you're successful, you can have moments of glamour. Farming is not glamorous. It's hard work. It's outdoors. It's usually hot. It's usually very hard work physically. And that's the picture. That's the reason why Paul's in it with that, because all of those things, the long-term view, the routine, the unglamour, is what our Christian life is normally like. For the vast majority of it, we're not called to be in the spotlight playing the big drum in the parade. We're called to be dealing with the daily routine, with a long-term view of success, doing something that is simply unglamorous. Our sin nature desires glamour. Our job does not usually put us in a place as Christians to be glamorous. And he also comments about the first to receive his share of the crops. It's basically saying it's okay not to be glamorous. It's okay to have a daily routine. It's okay to have a long-term view because you're going to eventually experience the fruits of your labor. The first to receive his share of the crop was the idea that he didn't sell his crop back in the first century and get his money for it like they do today. He got to keep a percentage of his crop, and that's what he would eat on, or that's what he would barter or trade or sell for money. It would not be the whole crop. It would be a portion of the crop that he would then use uh, for his, his uh, livelihood. So we've seen the soldier. We've seen the athlete. We've seen the farmer. How do you tie all this together? The great thing about this passage is it ends with our conclusion. It gives us our conclusion in verse 7 because Paul says to Timothy, consider what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The reason he says this for Timothy is the same thing for us because at this point Timothy's saying, okay, I get the soldier, I get the athlete, I get the farmer, I got a little bit more motivation, but I still don't understand where the rubber meets the road. Okay, I can think about a farmer all day, an athlete all day, but what does that mean for tomorrow? What does that mean for the person I'm scared to death to witness to? What does it mean for me that doesn't know where to use my spiritual gift? I don't know what to do next. He's saying if you consider, if you'll think about it, if you'll meditate on it, if you'll pray, God will give you understanding what's next. God will give you the understanding of how to apply that, what to do that's next. So, it's motivation for us to think about this lesson, to pray about this lesson. If we've got anxiety and we need motivation to use our spiritual gifts, to say, God, open up that door and show me how you want me to use that spiritual gift. Um, 
we have to realize that for each of these little motivational illustrations he gives us, he calls us to have the attributes of all three. I spent the week pouring through my library looking for an illustration of the farmer who is a world-famous athlete, who is a world-famous soldier. And I found a couple, but what I discovered was they moved through those things at different points in life. They would be a farmer, they would hate it, so they would become an athlete, they'd be a world-class athlete, and then war broke out and they became a soldier and they lost their athletic ability, or vice versa. They were a soldier, their term of duty ended, and then they became a world-famous athlete. But I struggled to find the person that was all three simultaneously until I realized I was thinking about it wrong. Because what God gives us the ability to do, as we think about the soldiers, we think about the athletes, think about the farmer, is we've got the ability to put ourselves in each of those positions in terms of what they do in our spiritual sense, like they do in a physical sense, on a daily basis. And how do we do that? The best illustration I came up with is putting on their shoes. They've all got different footwear. The farmer wears a different kind of shoe. The athlete wears a different kind of shoe. The soldier wears a different kind of shoe. And I and you on a daily basis wear different shoes. Like you, I sometimes wear house slippers when I wake up in the morning. I'll put on my work shoes, which for me varies from penny loafers someday to wingtips one day to boots one day to when I'm uh, wearing casual shoes. I'll wear some leather shoes like my Sperry's if I'm going out to dinner at night. If I'm going to go work out, I'll wear my tennis shoes. So we've got the idea of putting the correct shoes on for the jobs God's calling me to do. Just like with us needing to be the farmer with the long-term view and the non-glamorous view. That's putting on one pair of shoes for that day where I need that mindset. For the athlete that just says, I, with God's help, I'm going to outwork everybody else. I'm going to outstudy everybody else. I'm going to outpray everybody else. I'm going to outlearn everybody else in my Bible. And I'm going to use that extra calling and put those shoes on with God's motivation and strength to help me do it. For the soldier that's focused, that's single-minded, that's not entangled with the world. For that view of my spiritual life, I'm going to put those shoes on when I need to do that. So Paul's motivation is to self, be self-aware of where we struggle, be self-aware of one day I need to be like a farmer, one day I need to be like the athlete and push harder, one day I need to be like the soldier and focus harder. Put the shoes on for that day. Focus your prayer in that way. Focus your Bible study in that way. Focus on your commitment and your and your quiet time with God to have him talk to you about those struggles and those issues and put on the correct shoes. So that's Paul's motivation to Timothy. That's Paul's motivation for us. We've seen spiritual gift anxiety in chapter one. We saw some spiritual gift motivation in the start of chapter two. Next week, we're going to finish chapter two. We might even get into chapter three. I'm still working on exactly where I think God wants us to stop next week. But it's going to be some great studies because Paul's going to continue to apply these issues and give us some great insight and motivation into how he wants us to live this life. Remember, it's Paul's last will and testament. This is the most important thing he could say to Timothy before he dies. It's the most important thing he could say for us to be before he dies. And if it's that important, the challenge for us is, can I remember it? Can I apply it? And can I use it for God's glory through me 
in the way he wants me to use it. I hope you enjoyed the lesson. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to study your word. We thank you for this motivation. We pray this week that you would give us opportunities to learn more about you, to be more like the soldier, more like the athlete, more like the farmer, doing the things you want us to do with our spiritual gifts. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the opportunity to be the men and women you want us to be. It's not for our glory, but for your glory. And because of that, it's in your name we pray for the power to do these things that we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Happy Father's Day. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. Have a great week. Thanks. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.